Welcome back to Beyond Texas with W.F. Strong. That would be me. I haven't been able to produce a podcast for a few weeks because of 8,000 Christmas chores that took priority, but now I've got the tree up and shopping done and lunches and dinners with friends and families enjoyed and the lawn mowed, so I have some time. So let's jump in. The audiobook version of my book, Stories from Texas, Some of Them Are True, is quite often in the top 20 on Audible for audiobooks on North American travel and tourism. When I first discovered this, I was surprised because I didn't expect to see it in that category. Though certainly an ego boost to see it so high on that list, my purpose at the moment is not really to place drop or engage in a humble brag. I'm wanting to point out that the number one book on this list almost all the time, is Cheryl Strayed's now classic work, Wild, about her solo backpacking of the Pacific Coast Trail, which was made into a movie starring Reese Witherspoon. I interviewed Cheryl right after that book came out, and it was, at the time, moving steadily up the charts. It was number seven on the New York Times bestseller list the day I interviewed her, on its way to a long stay at the number one spot on that list, plus an Oprah book selection, and an Amazon book of the year. Given the dominance of that book in the nonfiction travel and adventure category over the last decade, I thought it would be worth revisiting my interview with her. Before we begin, let me provide this brief synopsis of her book. Wild is a powerful, blazingly honest memoir, the story of an 1,100-mile solo hike that broke down a young woman reeling from catastrophe and built her back up again. At 22, Cheryl Strait thought she had lost everything. In the wake of her mother's death, her family scattered and her own marriage was soon destroyed, four years later, with nothing more to lose, she made the most impulsive decision of her life to hike the Pacific Crest Trail from the Mojave Desert through California and Oregon to Washington State, and to do it alone. She had no experience as a long-distance hiker, and the trail was little more than an idea, vague and outlandish and full of promise. But it was a promise of piecing back together a life that had come undone. Today we have a special treat, have a wonderful book, number seven on the New York Times nonfiction list right now, number one on Kindle for books for women and for books on adventure too, I suppose. This book has been getting high praise. It's taken off nationally, internationally, and it's hit a responsive chord for, for many readers. So I'm delighted to have Cheryl. How are you today, Cheryl? I'm great. It's such a pleasure to be here. Well, thank you. And you're in St. Paul today. I am. I'm on my book tour today in St. Paul, Minnesota. Where does your tour take you? Where have you been? I have been all over. I began in my hometown of Portland, Oregon, where I live right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm originally from Minnesota, so actually right now I'm in my hometown. So but now you're home. <laughs> I, I live in Portland, Oregon and have for many years. And then I went up to Seattle and on to the East Coast, to New York and Boston and D.C., and then to Los Angeles and San Francisco and Milwaukee and Denver and St. Louis. I've been all over. I'm heading to Duluth next, and that really is my, my home turf. I grew up in a little town west of Duluth and going to finish my tour again, returning to Los Angeles and back to Portland. 
Well, the book is called Wild, and it is, um, for people who are not familiar with it, it is uh, a journey, a kind of odyssey that goes from Southern California deserts all the way up through um, the, the forest of Oregon to the Columbia River. And the, of course, interesting thing is that you did this hike, this journey alone. I mean, you had people along the way that you talked to, but basically you were alone most of the time and insisted upon being so because this was part of your desire to um, to complete this on your own, right? That's right. Yeah, the solitude was really important to me. I, I, it's hard to backpack a long distance anytime, no matter, no matter who you're with. You're, it's still you against mm-hmm. yourself. But I wanted to really place myself in a situation where I was, was absolutely relying on myself and really carrying everything I needed and not sharing that weight, either metaphorically or literally, with anyone else. But so that the, was an important piece of it for me. But the other important thing we must put in here so people will know is that you had never hiked before. Well, I'd hiked. I'd not gone back. But not like this. Yeah. I'd, I was always, you know, I'd grown up in rural northern Minnesota, so the wilderness was a place that felt like home to me. And I had gone, you know, on lots of hikes and so forth, but had never backpacked and have, had never really, you know, walked into the wilderness by myself, carrying everything I needed on my back. And that's a very different thing yes. than going on a day hike. You would never put on a full pack. And of course, there's a wonderful comical scene at the beginning of this when you, you're you going to go off on your, your trip. You've got, you're in the hotel, you've got the pack packed and you can't lift it. That's right. That's <laughs> right. And, you know, I, I didn't pack my pack until mm-hmm. that first morning that I was going to begin hiking the trail. So, you know, this is by no means, well, this is by no means a guide of what to, how to go backpacking because <laughs> I made so many mistakes, especially at the beginning. And, you know, I, when I did pack that pack and realized that I couldn't lift it even a hair or an inch, that was really the paradox of my journey. I had to figure out how was I going to bear this weight that I couldn't bear. And, you know, so much of the book is about that in, in real physical um, and literal terms. And also it's about you know, I had a real emotion. I came out to the trail with an emotional struggle uh, and really was trying to figure out how I could bear the facts of my life inside myself. Four years before the uh, before I began my hike, my mother had died very suddenly of cancer. She was 45. She died when I was a senior in college. Mm-hmm. And she was also a senior in college at the time. And it really uh, split my life in two. It was, a, it was my greatest sorrow. And in my grief, I, I spun into a self-destructive mode and it was out of that place um, that I needed, I realized I needed to gather myself again. And that was the impulse for that hike. I, I felt I needed to return to myself and become the woman my mother had raised me to be. So that was my way to try to do that. That hike was. Well, at the very beginning, one of the things that confused me is you you started, um, and having lived in Arizona in the desert, I, I understood the enormous challenge of this and the craziness too that you were starting in this enormous heat with a backpack that probably weighed at least 50 pounds oh far more than that yeah just the water i had to carry that first day was 24 and a half pounds and so and it was uh, over 100 degrees at least when you started right yeah it was it was hot. you know it was interesting when i started it was it was hot and i was walking along a stretch of trail where there was no water, um, really, for miles and miles. And, you know, I didn't, again, you know, this goes into my, I, I prepared in logistical ways, like I had to prepare my resupply boxes and mail them to myself at stops along the way. I had to buy all the gear. I had to, you know, read the guidebook and, and map my course out. But I 
really didn't think through a lot of things. You know, I was coming from Minnesota, where <laughs> there's honestly a lake, you know, where the, the land of 10,000, like there's a lake every, you know, where you, you turn. And so I get out there and I realize, oh, there's no water on the trail for a long way. I had to carry that water. And I didn't realize how uh, solitary I was. I, I didn't encounter another human being the first eight days of my hike. I, I didn't know how much I was really going to have to very much rely on myself. And um, so, yeah, it was probably poor planning to begin in the desert. <laughs> well, what I <laughs> kept wondering is, since your pack was so heavy and it was so hot and you were struggling, like, uh, you know, the myth of Sisyphus, you know, right. why didn't you just empty some of it? Well, you know, what's interesting, like I said, I didn't see another hiker for the first eight days, another person. Mm-hmm. And so, honestly, I didn't know. I knew my pack was heavy, but I didn't know that I had too much stuff. I thought, okay. this well, was this, normal. Is what, this is what backpackers do. You know, I really uh, carried with me what I thought I needed, and a lot of it, you know, was legitimate. And um, so I didn't know even what to get rid of. And it wasn't until later into the trip that I met other hikers, and they, some of them were much more experienced than me and really helped me go through my pack and see what I needed and so forth. But even then, I still had the, you know, the biggest and heaviest pack, and part of it was that I was hiking alone. I couldn't divvy up anything between right. me and a hiking partner. But the other part of it is um, I, I think that I needed, there were things I chose to carry, you know, books and a really big hardback journal and a big camera and things that I, I couldn't let go of um, for, for a ways. And, you know, as the summer progressed, my pack did get lighter and lighter. Well, you did this over, you did this 20 years ago, right? I did it in the summer of 1995. So okay. um, it was, you know, seven, no. I guess that's 17 years yes. ago, right? And uh, the O.J. Simpson trial was, of yeah. course, in progress, so to speak. But I, I often thought how things would have been different or how things must be different today when you take on a journey like that. If you had had a cell phone with you, uh, wouldn't that have ruined everything? It is different, and it's interesting. I, I talk to long-distance hikers now who, who hike the Pacific Crest Trail or the Appalachian Trail, and they say, yes, they're out there um, with iPods listening to music. They're with cell phones, and, of course, their cell phones don't always get reception, but, but they do often enough. And just this past summer, I was actually on the PCT on, on a section of the trail that I had hiked back in 1995, and I checked. Um, I pulled out my iPhone and I got online and I tweeted on Twitter from the trail. <laughs> and, um, you know, that was kind of neat. It was like, here I am on the PCT and I'm on Twitter. And it was also kind of sad to me. I, you know, so much of what I came up against um, on the trail was, was sort of unpleasant. Like I, I write in Wild about how I suddenly, I just missed music so much. And, you know, in those long, tedious hours throughout the day, I would sing to myself and be in my head <laughs> recounting songs and trying to piece together their lyrics or, or trying to purge songs from my head, you know, jingles, advertising jingles. That would yeah, I love that. You'd, you'd sing commercials. <laughs> yes. And I think that there's something powerful about the way the mind works when it's left to its own devices. You know, if I were listening to digital books or listening to music in my, in my headphone, in my, you know, my, um, with my iPod or something, I think it would change that experience. And, and also just connected, uh, being connected to the outside world. People now, you, we could go online right now and read journals by people um, hiking these trails. You know, they've posted all along the way and are having this constant contact with the outside world. I really didn't. Um, when I would get to my resupply stops every week or two, 
there might be a payphone there, be able to call someone, um, or somebody might have sent me a letter uh, to the to the post office along the way. But I was very much uh, cut off from my life and the people I knew. Well, one of the things I thought quite interesting about this, once I realized it was you know twenty years before, uh, which gets revealed fairly early, uh, but I think that by having a look back, you know, through the prism of your own life, it gives it a a holistic brilliance that wouldn't be there if you had just written a travel log. Thank you. Yeah, I think it would be a thinner book, I mean, yeah. in, in figurative terms, mm-hmm. if I'd written it right after my hike. And then, you know, in the New York Times uh, this week, I read about this woman who said that she kept a journal of her life uh, through books, and she called this book Bob, the book of books, where she wrote about books she had read, and this became a better journal than anything else she could have done because it resonated with events in her life. And yours is kind of like that, except it's on the trail. You talk about the books you're reading and what they mean to you as, as you're, you know, on your journey. And I think that's quite fascinating too. So you get a literary journal, uh, excuse me, a literary journey, a physical journey and a spiritual journey all in one. Thank you. Yeah, that's right. Books were really important to me. They've always been important to me. Um, But on the trail, they became even more so because, so often I was alone, and at the end of the day, really that thing I had to occupy me was, was getting lost in the pages of a book. And I looked forward to that uh, all day long. And uh, one of the, uh, the things that I chose to do with those books as I read them, and this was incredibly hard for me as a, as a book, passionate book lover, is to lighten my load along the way. I would burn the pages of those books as I read them. At the end of each night, I would burn whatever pages I'd read. Or, you know, the next morning I'd wake up and do that so I wouldn't have to carry their weight. And so, yeah, you do, at the end of Wild, you get a little guide of all the books I burned on the PCT. <laughs> and um, they're really, it's really quite a list. Uh, and I, each of those books that I read on that trail, I, they sort of have a pl- special place in my life still. Another dimension of this that uh, captivated me was when you lost your shoe. Yeah. I said, yeah. oh, no, you know, she's dead. <laughs> How did you lose your shoe? Well, I was, I had take my feet gave me so much trouble. They, yes. they were so painful all summer long um, that at every moment that I would even stop for a five-minute break, I would take off my, my boots so I could just give my feet some a rest, you know. And I had taken off my boots, and I reached for something in my pack. I was sitting on this steep section of the trail, just really on the trail itself, and my pack fell onto my one of my boots and just catapulted it up into the air and it skittered down and off the side of that mountain out of reach and i really did find myself you know in a predicament because i you know those i needed my boots right so uh, you know i i figured out a way to uh to go forward without my boots i threw the other one over the side too because what's one boot <laughs> without the other but um it really uh was one of those moments it was real midway into my hike that that I uh, had to be inventive, let us say. <laughs> I love it. And then you used duct tape to I did. Duct tape survive. really is the best product Isn't ever it? made. I tell you. Um, a combination of my socks, sandals, and some duct tape. Yeah, I remember a, a farmer I used to work for when I was a kid. He would say, if I can't fix it with duct tape or bailing wire, I don't need it. <laughs> Never a greater truth spoken. You know, it's really duct tape comes in handy. And I learned... Uh, Early, I mean, it's funny. I, duct tape is not one of the things I had with me at the very beginning of my hike when my pack was so loaded down. But I quickly learned from other hikers that you know you don't travel without duct tape because it, it does have many uses. 
or the uh, and the, well, the other thing I guess that everybody thinks of when they look at a book like yours, it says, you know, you can't help but think a woman alone in the wilderness, and but your experience was ninety eight percent of the men were good and helpful and kind. Absolutely, I, I think that. You know, we do have that narrative about women, that mm-hmm. women are, shouldn't do things alone, that we're putting ourselves at risk, and, you know, that women really are, you know, sort of victimized and, and treated sort of as prey in our culture in a lot, of, in a lot mm-hmm. of ways. And I decided that, you know, I wasn't going to let that narrative define my life. I wasn't going to give way to some of those fears, you know, some that are reasonable and others really not so reasonable. And, uh, you know, my fear of Wild animals, for example, most wild animals don't want anything to do with us. They, mm-hmm. they, 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 you know, ran every bear I saw on the trail. They ran away, and so I decided that the only way I was really going to be able to to make this trip is if I just told myself I wasn't afraid, and that worked really well. You know, every time I heard a little uh, branch cracking, I I, I thought uh, to myself, it's it's just something in the woods. Don't don't be afraid, and that was really helpful to me. And the men I met, the other the other hikers, people I met along the way, were by and large incredibly generous, incredibly kind. There was a real kindred spirit out there. Um, when you meet somebody who's who's doing the same thing you're doing, and and we all know it, it, it's a it's a, an amazing, uh, fun thing to do, and also an incredibly difficult thing to do. There was this sense among us that we would help each other, and so I helped others who I met, and they helped me. And they were incredibly important to me and really restored uh, my sense of of the goodness of the human of, of humankind. I, I do believe that we're good at core. Most of us are. And, you know, I did have a couple. I did have one encounter that was, was yes. scary. Yeah, that one, but, uh, I, toward the end, you know, you had that moment. And I said, as a reader in the drama, I'm saying, please don't let this happen. Right. You know, please don't ruin this please. journey. Right, and, and I'm and sure you were saying that too. I was, and I knew too. And and how you know how that one thing that didn't happen, if it did happen, how that would have entirely redefined everything that came before it. Yes, you know, and um, it didn't happen, and I'm so grateful for that. But I think too that that was a really important moment because I I had gotten to the point where I felt really comfortable and mm-hmm. safe, and that was a good reminder that. You know there is there is danger in the world as much as I believe that the, in the goodness of the human spirit. I understood I also had to protect myself. And but I that think was you were. I think your presence of mind uh, probably prevented it. Oh yeah, that's an, an interesting. I, I think. At least the I way you describe right. it, the way you describe it here, I think there was possible. There was potential, and you were cool and calm and delayed it long enough for it to pass. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. But in it any was, case, it, it makes for a nice moment in the writing, too. So, <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, it was really fun. to. I mean, one of the things about writing wild as a writer mm-hmm. that I enjoyed is I really got to express the full range of emotions on the page. I got to write scenes that were tense and scary, like the one we're just talking about. Mm-hmm. I got to write uh, funny scenes, you know, uh, happy scenes, scenes of really my greatest sorrow. The the hardest things I've ever written are in Wild. And, you know, some seriously emotional uh, moments. And so I really got to to express that range. It was it felt like a gift as a writer to to you know to do that. Well, I picked this up on a Friday and uh, I had finished the 1100 mile hike in 2 days, so I was much faster than you. 
but all the time I was stopping to read to my wife to say, listen to this, uh, because you had, like you said, humor and drama and uh, philosophy. Every, everything was beautiful. Thank you. That's so kind of you. What are what are the women? Uh, you're running into lots of women on your tour, and uh, I, I noticed that you know my stepdaughter was quite fascinated with this. That you know a woman went alone on mm-hmm. on, on a journey, and and she was fascinated by it and seduced by it, so to speak. She she wants to do this or something like it. Right. So what are women telling you? Well, really, first I want to talk about men. The, okay. the big the big uh, great thing about this is. So many men are responding so strongly to this book. Um, you know, I think that a lot of people, they, they think of a, a story about a, a woman hiking alone and uh, that it's really going to be a book for women. And certainly a lot of women are coming to me and saying what you just said. They identify or it inspires them to take a trip like this of their own. But men, too. I mean, really men, not even just a little bit. You know, it, I would say that half the audience is male. Um, mm-hmm. People coming to my readings on book tour, men coming to me and, and seeing um, themselves in the story. And that's incredibly gratifying. You know, memoir gets this bad rap for being narcissistic or self-absorbed. And I think that, you know, any memoirist will tell you what we're really trying to do is to use the self to tell a universal story, to tell a story where other people will find themselves in it too. And so that doesn't exclude, when you do that, that doesn't exclude um, the rest of humanity. And so it's just been incredible to hear um, people, from, you know, young and old, male and female, um, people who have never had any experiences such as I had, you know, the things that brought me out to the trail, um, and then others who, who do identify. I'm, I'm hearing from a lot of people whose parents, who've lost a parent at a young age, they're identifying with the story on that level. I'm hearing from people who love to hike or have hiked some of these long trails. And, you know, they, they come to me and tell me their stories. And, you know, different people come to the memoir from, from different places. And it's been just pretty amazing to see that range. Well, you, you are unusual in that you tell the unvarnished truth much of the time. I mean, you, you reveal a lot in here that many people would not in a memoir, and that makes it more valid to me. Thank you. Yeah, I, I do really feel, I mean, I absolutely get a stomachache when I think about, you know, because it is so personal. And But I'm pretty passionate about the the fact that, you know, uh, the writer's job is to tell the truth, you know, whether that be a literal truth in nonfiction or, you know, that, that deeper truth in, in any work of literature, whether, you know, fiction, poetry, that we're searching for what it means to be human. And I think that that does entail not protecting yourself being fearless on the page, even if you are afraid to write those things down or feel uncomfortable about people reading certain things about you. Um, you know, that, that to me, that's the, that's the work I'm interested in reading. And so I have really approached my, my own writing in that way. Well, when I saw the, that, uh, you know, you have a writing career prior to this book, I thought of you kind of kind of like a garage band where, you know, you've been at this a long time, but now everything is exploding in a very positive way. You know, you're, you're being discovered. It's really interesting. I mean, you're right. I have uh, previously published another book. My novel, Torch, was published by Houghton Mifflin in 2006, and I've published many essays. And I certainly had an audience. Um, before Wild came along. It was, you know, the the small pool in the sort of literary world of, you know, a few thousand people who read my work and who knew who I was. And so it's very strange now to have Wild 
I mean, I'm 43, and mm-hmm. I've been a serious writer really since I was 19 or 20. So I've I've definitely paid my dues and done my time. And uh, so to have this uh, this book resonate with with a much larger audience is a really strange experience. I, I have to tell you, I don't know that I've absorbed it. It feels uh, something to some something that happened to someone who lives down the street, <laughs> and um and and I think that's okay. It's probably just as it should be. The the really important thing that I remember every day is this book would be the exact same book that it is if 20 people read it versus, you know, 200,000 or whatever. Um, that, that my work was really in creating this, this book and telling this story. And then what happens outside of it is really outside of, of me. You've been on um, tour uh, over many places, naturally. So what all have you been on? You've been on, like, Good Morning America? or what? I've been on uh, and all kinds of um, radio shows, NPR's Weekend mm-hmm. Edition, and I've talked to, to various um, reporters from, from different newspapers. I've been on different TV shows. I haven't been on a national television show yet. I've, I've yet to, uh, to have that experience, and I'm sort of grateful. I don't have the right clothes, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I, think, uh, I think John Stewart will probably have you on. Think, yeah, right. <laughs> he, he likes... All my friends would be so jealous. They, everyone I know has a crush on John Stewart. <laughs> well, he does a lot of book interviews, you know? And, yeah, and so, I do think he usually interviews people who have a more political bent. Um, but yeah, I would let's just put it this way: I, I wouldn't be, say no if John called. <laughs> your, but your book's been um, growing steadily. It was the book of the month in Amazon in March. That's right. And so it's been growing steadily, uh, going up the chart, so to speak. Every... It has, and, and at the opening, you said it was number seven on uh-huh. the. That's our list. Well, it's it's number six now. So. All right. You yeah, see, it moved up. All because you talked to me. That's right. That's right. <laughs> I moved you up a notch. Minutes. But no, it's been it's been a really wonderful thing. And mm-hmm. and the thing that's really powerful to me about that is, you know, just what a, I feel what a privilege that um, that my book gets into more people's hands and that mm-hmm. and that people are actually reading this little thing I wrote. Um, it, it is overwhelming, you know, and so I, I feel just absolutely grateful for all of it. Well, listen, I, I thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Really glad you got in touch because it's been my great pleasure to talk to you. That's all for this edition of Beyond Texas. I'm excited about a brand new interview I have coming up in early January concerning the only federally supported leper colony in U.S. history. This will be an interview with Pam Fessler, author of Carville's Cure, the unknown story of the only leprosy colony in the continental United States and the thousands of Americans who were exiled, hidden away with their, quote, shameful disease. Another gripping chapter in U.S. medical history. Also for Christmas, I'm going to repost a remastered version of last year's exquisitely beautiful Hemingway story called Christmas at the Roof of the World. A friend of mine, Australian Daryl Misson, is a professional audio engineer. He added poignant sounds to my narration, and I think you'll find he truly and rather thoroughly animated Hemingway's gorgeous story. I hope you enjoy it. Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, Happy New Year.